This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, ending bias in corporate America, household and beauty giant Procter & Gamble doubling down on its efforts to combat racism, Chief Communications Officer Damon Jones. We think that we are going to be part of the solution um, by setting the great example that we've been setting taking action where it's needed, being very clear on the standards, and then walking the talk. And Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot on getting her city and others past the coronavirus crisis. We're going to be challenged like every region across the country, but we see this as mission critical, that we really have no choice but to make these key investments, particularly the investments in our workforce and our people. Those stories, plus working from home when home is on a beach. A 12-month Barbados welcome stamp. It's Friday, July 10th, 2020. It's also Friday when you know what that means, that I'm in love. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on today's podcast, companies combating bias. Many American corporations are taking a closer look at their impact on employees and customers when it comes to issues of diversity and inclusion. One of the most visible examples, the Stop Hate for Profit campaign, encouraging advertisers to boycott Facebook amid calls for the social media giant to better moderate racist content. We've discussed this initiative at length here on Squawk Pod. Check out Wednesday's episode for our most recent conversation with one of the campaign's organizers. But one of Facebook's and Google's biggest advertisers has remained uninvolved in the boycott. That's Procter & Gamble, the consumer goods giant that owns household brands like Gillette, Bounty, Tide, Downey, Vicks, Crest, the list goes on. But while fellow consumer giants like PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, and Unilever have pulled or paused their advertising with Facebook, P&G has not, even though P&G has a history of calling out big tech platforms about this very issue. In 2019, the company spoke out against digital media platforms, suggesting P&G could move its ad dollars to services who do a better job at keeping their platforms free of offensive content. And they weren't kidding. In 2017 and 18, Procter & Gamble had boycotted YouTube for over a year after its ads showed up next to terrorist content. So why has P&G remained on the sidelines in this boycott? The company's strategy has instead been to double down on its own approach to combat racism with ads like The Look and The Talk about conversations black parents have with their children in this country. The Talk actually won an Emmy a few years ago. You are not pretty for a black girl. You are beautiful, period. Okay? Don't ever forget that. This week, Procter & Gamble released another short video, The Choice, encouraging white Americans to speak up and stand up against racial bias, as well as the hashtag Let's Talk About Bias, fostering conversation about race between strangers. Everyone has bias. This might be uncomfortable. Can you imagine that officer having his knee on a white woman's neck like that for 10 minutes? It all starts with bias. Each video is a powerful watch. Damon Jones, Chief Communications Officer at Procter & Gamble, joined Squawk Box this morning to discuss the strategy. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Damon, good morning to you. Um, good morning. Before we, get into some, before we get into some of the details, just, just tell us how this came about. And I'm curious about what kind of debate there may or may not have been uh, inside the company about how to approach this. Well, for years, we've been using our voice and position as a leading advertiser to spark these constructive conversations on race and unbiased. You know, back in 2014, we launched a campaign called Like a Girl to talk about gender bias. In 2017, we launched a campaign called The Talk that really shined the light on the conversations that black mothers were having with their children 
to prepare them. Last year, we did a, a campaign called The Look. Uh, and recently with the choice, we wanted to catalyze even more conversation, given all that was happening in the world. Um, so we know that a lot of the core evils that we're facing right now, racism, sexism, xenophobia, they all start with bias. And we can't tackle these problems uh, until we begin to talk about them. So the challenge is always, how do you do that in an accurate way? How do you do that in a way that really brings people voices, but invite them in to really become part of the solution? That's our objective with the Talk About Bias campaign. You know, it's an important message, but we're we're living in contentious uh, times and, and amid what some people might describe as a cancel culture. And I don't know if you remember when Starbucks many years ago uh, put together their Race Together program, which immediately uh, drew criticism, despite I think it's well-intentioned. And my, my question to you is how you think about that sort of uh, mix uh, in terms of how you approach this issue and what kind of feedback you've gotten thus far. Sure. Well, I mean, I think what we know, um, because we're all about serving consumers, consumers want to know the values behind the brands that they buy every day. Uh, and as we consider all of these types of programs, we do it in a fair and accurate and a very respectful manner. Uh, we're very clear on our goals. Um, we want uh, a society um, that fosters great public discourse, even when we disagree. So we bring multiple views to the table um, and we handle those views in a very respectful way. We're clear on the objectives, we're clear on the outcomes, uh, and we acknowledge that, hey, not everyone's gonna disagree, but we want everyone to come to the table bringing their lived experience, but also bringing uh, perspectives that are beyond their own. So what we did with Talk About Bias is we paired strangers together, right? People who were different, who have different lived experiences, white, black, gay, straight, all these dimensions of diversity, and we just said, let's talk about these things, right? Uh, and sometimes we disagree, sometimes feelings get a little hurt, but that's the proper process of learning. We've actually taken that same process within the walls of PNG, right? So we're walking the talk when it comes to bringing people together and getting through some of those difficult conversations. At the end of the day, it's not about a popularity contest, but it's about getting to uh, the culture uh, of respect uh, and understanding that we all want to live in. And then the other question I was going to ask is, how do you think about this in terms of branding? I know that may sound crass, but that's uh, there is a branding element to all of this. Um, you know, historically, people uh, so you know, P&G would sell a product. Um, this is selling a brand and there really is no I mean, there is an overarching brand, but you have lots of brands underneath the umbrella, if you will. We do. Well, and, and the answer is it's a little bit of both. There are times when we've chosen uh, to speak out using one of our brands, uh, Secret, for an example, is a brand that's been very vocal uh, about gender equality, right? Doing a lot of work with the U.S. women's national soccer team, for an example. There are times when other brands have gotten in. What we've done with Talk About Bias is we've used the, the brand of Procter & Gamble um, because we really want to make sure that that message is clear, that there's not a, an, another uh, distraction. Sometimes people feel that the message is too commercial. People feel like you're doing this to sell soap. Um, that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because we really want a better society. So those are careful, measured decisions that we take, uh, again, with the goal of making sure that that message can cut through uh, in a very measured, uh, in a very bold way, but in a way that really uh, has the impact of really changing minds, opening hearts, and leading people to action. The other question I was going to ask you, though, has to do with advertising. And I don't, I don't know how much you've been involved with this situation with Facebook and some of the others. How do you think this changes the advertising approach for a big company like yours? Well, I mean, I think we've been clear on the standards of advertising everywhere we want, right? Um, you know, we're not going to step in and advertise where there's hateful, denigrating, or derogatory comment. Um, but the higher level objective for us is the accurate and the respectful portrayal of all people. That's a standard that consumers should hold every company to. 
And that standard should be whether that's in advertising, whether that's in social content, or whether that's in the places where we choose to advertise. So we are seeing lots of consumer interest on that, uh, and we're taking action. We've been really clear on what our standards are. We're applying those standards equally to all of our partners, um, but we think that we are gonna be part of the solution um, by setting the great example that we've been setting, taking action where it's needed, being very clear on the standards, and then walking the talk to make sure that ourselves, we're doing uh, the accurate and positive portrayal of people. And when people don't see it, they should hold Procter & Gamble or any other company to account. Damon, we got to go. But one final question, which is this, from a commercial perspective, not advertising on Facebook, do you think it's actually had any impact on the business? Um, I can't speak for other companies. Um, You know, there are many different ways in which we can choose to get our messages out. We're going to put our dollars where those uh, decisions are made in a a fair, accurate and respectful way. Um, And I think consumers will recognize the good things that we do from that. Okay, Damon, uh, nice to see you. Appreciate, uh, Appreciate what you're doing and appreciate you coming on the program this morning. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot discusses the big implications of the coronavirus pandemic to the Windy City. We know that the only way that we grow the economy and grow our population is making sure that we create real pipelines to good paying jobs for black and brown Chicagoans uh, who have not been uh, dealt into the economic success that we've seen in years past. That conversation next. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Becky Quick. Chicago saw its largest spike in coronavirus infections in May. Now the city is seeing a leveling out in cases, and it's looking ahead to its economic recovery. This morning, the city is out with a comprehensive plan on its path forward. And joining us right now to talk all about it is Chicago's mayor, Lori Lightfoot. Mayor Lightfoot, thank you for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Before we talk uh, about the economic plan to help revive everything, let's let's just talk about where you all are right now. Um, I realize you guys are, I think, in stage four of reopening. Things are starting mm-hmm. to come back. But there are also a, a number of important Chicago employers that are looking at atten- additional layoffs and furloughs to come, including United, Boeing and Hyatt. So where, where do things stand on the ground right now? How are you all doing? Well, I think from a uh Uh, managing the public health crisis, I think we're doing pretty well. We were very, very cautious and conservative and starting to slowly reopen. We called it turning a dimmer switch and not flicking a light switch. So I think that served us well, but we're certainly conscious of uh, areas all around us where we're starting to see, they're starting to see an uptick in cases. But on all the uh, major indicators, hospitalizations, ICU beds, number of people on ventilators, uh, we are headed in the right direction. But daily, we continue uh, to preach dil- diligence. But look, our region's been hard hit, just as other regions across the country uh, have been hard hit. So that is why we needed to um, get ahead of this and really take control of our own destiny when it comes to economic recovery. So we spent 10 weeks um, really digging deep into looking at our region's strengths, not just from an economic standpoint. So this recovery task force uh, report and recommendations is about how we bring more people into the workforce, that we focus on our key strengths in areas like manufacturing, transportation and logistics and life sciences, um, and really start to think about what we need to do to create a vibrant economy that is much more inclusive. And workforce development, of course, is uh, key amongst them. 
Yeah, this is a pretty ambitious plan. It's trying to take a, take a stab not only at fighting every, everything that happened to the economy during COVID, but also long-term problems that you've identified in the city in terms of inclusiveness, in terms of racial disparity. What are the main overreaching goals with this? What are the three things that maybe you think you can do as a result? Well, one is build a much more inclusive economy, and you hit the nail on the head. Uh, we've been investing in areas of our city, uh, particularly on our south and west sides, that really haven't seen much in the way of development in decades. We know that the only way that we grow the economy and grow our population is making sure that we create real pipelines to good-paying jobs for black and brown Chicagoans uh, who have not been uh, dealt into the economic success that we've seen in years past. That growing of our workforce means that we have a ready, willing, and able workforce to really focus on our strengths, like tech. We're a tier one uh, tech city, uh, but we need to tell that story better, and we made to make sure that we've got the workers for a lot of these startup businesses. Um, manufacturing has always been one of our strengths. We need to make sure that we're creating uh, new markets for our manufacturing industry. And life sciences, we've got a collection, whether it's um, uh, pharmacy, uh, whether it's hospitals, um, science uh, and research. We are really second to none in this area, and we want to build on those strengths. But then again, match up the workforce with the jobs. So that's really what this report focuses a lot on and healing the trauma that people have suffered in our city. You were talking about some major investments, things like infrastructure investment, healthcare investment, uh, training initiatives, and, and, and trying to lure um, things like film and TV productions by, I would assume, offering them tax incentives to do that. Um, those are great plans, but most cities and, and states are facing a severe drop in their revenue that they've taken in. Where, where do you find the money for all of these investments? Well, look, I think we, we have resources and we have a lot of things that are attractive in the Chicago region. And yes, you're right, everybody is facing uh, resource challenges, revenue challenges, but that's the whole point. If you don't grow the economy, if you don't lure new businesses, if you don't expand existing businesses, then you're not going to have the revenue stream to be able to support uh, vital services that the government provides. We're not, we are looking to grow and not just simply tax the existing um, infrastructure and economy. We've got to give our businesses some relief, and we do that by growing the economy and focusing on our strengths. And you mentioned uh, uh, television. Look, when television production restarts anew, we have a plan and a pitch uh, that we're going to take to uh, folks in New York and on the West Coast because we've got the infrastructure here. We've got a great trained um, um, our workforce, and we need to make sure that the Chicago story is one that's on uh, the lips of every booking agent, and that's what we're prepared to do. Yeah, I, I, I agree with the plan wholeheartedly. I just come back to the idea of how do you do it this time around? Do you operate on a budget deficit? Do you have funds that you can pull in from other places? I understand completely the idea that you want to expand the footprint and, and, and have more business, more jobs, and a bigger way to grow the revenue base. Just It's always that constant question that gets asked of what do you cut in order to make those investments? Well, I, I think we make the investments, and we've been fortunate enough um, in some of the resources that we have. Look, we're um, going to be challenged like every region across the country, but we see this as mission critical that we really have no choice but to make these key investments, particularly the investments in our workforce and our people. If we put people back to work by making strategic and smart investments, 
um, that is going to help us um, rebuild our economy and be primed to take advantage of opportunities. I think even with the challenges that there are with businesses really of reevaluating um, their priorities, they're going to still be making decisions about where and how they invest. We, we've already seen a lot of companies saying we're going to make strategic investments here and there. We want Chicago to be at the top of the list when those companies make, make the investments. So this is, as I said before, really about taking our own destiny into our hands, not waiting for the market uh, to do its work on us, but really trying to control and shape the market and the narrative um, and build on Chicago's strengths. You know, we've watched this play out as states have kind of tried to lure businesses away from each other over years. And, and, and lately, it seems like Florida and Texas have done a lot of the winning on that. They have uh, not only talked about how they have the Sun Belt, how they have a lifestyle there, but the big issue to try and lure businesses has been taxes. Is that something that you can talk to these companies about, too? Illinois no, has had I a think- difficult situation for a long time. Can you, can you change that, uh, that sort of narrative? Well, I think I think we can change that narrative. But the businesses that I've been talking to and the companies that we've been trying to lure, the first issue on their minds right now is where are you in the cycle of covid? What have you done to uh, protect the local workers uh, and businesses? And how have you been a partner with them in creating opportunities, even in these difficult times? And I think we've got a great story to tell here in Chicago. If you look at us and you compare us to um, every other major city in the country, we're trending in the right direction, meaning cases going down, deaths going down, hospitalizations going down. We've got a great public health infrastructure. That is a key selling point in this economy right now. Mayor Lightfoot, what what has surprised you the most over the last several months as we've gone through this COVID experience? And and what changes do you think are are here to stay? Not temporary changes, but permanent changes in the way uh, people work and in the way companies do business. Well, look, I think uh, what I've heard from a lot of CEOs is uh, we didn't think we could telework. We didn't think we could be flexible in the way that we manage our workforce. Um, And what they've discovered is, in fact, they can. And actually, productivity has gone up in the way that they've managed um, a lot of these difficult decisions. So we want to make sure that we're supportive of that work. And if you look at um, our recovery task force report, this is really driven by conversations and meetings and collaboration uh, with businesses on every sector, not-for-profit organizations. So really thinking holistically about what drives our economy and how we get the um, workforce um, back to work. What do we do to make sure that they are being able to work safely and smartly in a time where COVID is still very much part of our presence? But the innovativeness of our, our business and not-for-profit, but also our government sector has really been incredible. And of course, the strength of our healthcare workers and our first responders has been phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really carried us forward. Yeah. Yeah, kudos, kudos to all of them. When you, you think about companies working, having workers working remotely more frequently, I, I just wonder what that means for, for cities in general. Will it be less likely that people will be willing to live in cities, pay the higher rent that they have to pay there, if you could take that job and, and, and work from somewhere in the suburbs or even further, further afield? You know, look, I think that right now we're still evolving. People are teleworking, but people are slowly starting to come back into cities. And cities really are where it's at. Um, The vibrancy of the cultural life 
um, the um, assets that um, cities can provide, the synergies uh, that you get from bringing people together in a place like Chicago or New York or L.A. You can't replicate that um, anyplace else. And particularly when you're thinking about a younger workforce, they want to be in an area where they can enjoy their life outside of their businesses. What's the best place for that when you've got a younger population, as most uh, businesses do? That's cities. So I think we're still evolving and we're, and we're yet to see the final chapter written on our, on our post-COVID life because we're still very much in the, in the thick of this. Um, but cities, I think, are, are going to continue uh, to be incredibly important for businesses, for economies, and we're still going to be driving it. We in Illinois are the largest uh, economic engine uh, for our state, but also for our region. And that's why we've taken a regional approach uh, to our to recovery task force. We haven't just limited us to the boundaries of the city of Chicago. We've had great participation um, from our regional co- um, uh, partners all across northern Illinois. And we're working on regional strategies to really tell the economic story here as well. Mayor Lightfoot, I want to thank you for your time this morning. Um, We'll be watching, obviously, and we wish you the best of luck in this uh, continued effort. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. If you are sick of working for home and you want a change of scenery... Consider this, folks. The prime minister of Barbados considering letting visitors stay and work remotely from the island for a year. Lawmakers there considering what they're calling a 12-month Barbados welcome stamp. It would seek to help replace lost tourism revenue. Uh, There have been 98 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Barbados. The island has been relaxing restrictions and has lifted curfews. I have been trying, Joe. I know know you'll say it's cynical to find the, the tax rate. Uh, in Barbados, and uh, for the tax rate for 2020 uh, is about 28%. I don't believe the welcome stamp comes with a tax rebate of any sort, just right. so we're on the same page. Well, he's, he's saying, come on down. But they it, will it, let you work from there. Right, but it, is it rent-free? I mean, has he got a bunch of places, like at some Airbnbs, where you can just move in? Or, I, I, you know, he's saying, come down. What does it actually include? Yeah, I can go to Barbados anytime I want, I think, as long as I can pay for the But hotel. you can't, well, I think, I think sort of like the United States, you actually, just, you can't just come work in Barbados. Can't work. Okay, uh, so that's the... Uh, I think you just can't willy-nilly show up and do whatever so you want. So it's still going to be costly. Um, I think you go on vacation there. Yeah, I you mean... Get, really... You get a tourist visa, but I think that they're giving you a longer one. That's the... I mean, yeah, there are a lot point, of states that wouldn't take you from from the United States. You know, there, there are states within the United States that don't want people. So the idea that they're right. saying, "Come on down, we welcome you," you know, that's different in itself too. Right, but uh, I think it's you know, who's come down? It's only oh, two. It's only two thousand. Better yet, guys. Huh? I'm getting more information. So As here's speak, the deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. The who's tax rate uh, for the tax rate is only twelve and a half percent. On taxable income, but that's actually well. If it's that's if it's under fifty thousand um, Barbados dollars. If it's over fifty thousand, then it's at twenty eight and a half percent. Just so everybody's clear, residential yeah, you, rental you know income it, is it, taxed at fifteen percent. New York City is not going to let go of that income, even if you're not there. Right, it sounds exactly. like they are fighting people already who are working in the Hamptons and the rest. So you're going to pay the New York City taxes you normally do. And then you can pay 12.5% in Barbados, too, because that's going to be a big fight. There are so many of us who aren't working in New York and haven't been for months. 
and we're still paying New York City and state taxes. Right. Right. And, and, and you get it'd be there, expensive to live in Barbados. It's expensive unless you're living in the center of the island or something. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not. I think that we just are stuck. You're not sold. No, let's stay here. This is going to be a, a, I'd love Um, to hear more about this, though. This is going to be a fight between all these municipalities, these cities that no longer have all the workers in them. And, you know, there's cities everywhere where people are working out in the suburbs, not in the city limits, maybe not in the state limits anymore. And that's going to be an interesting case study to see what happens. The whole uh, movement of the millennials to the the city. And then I guess they eventually move out when they have kids. But uh, that's all been it's in it's up in the air now. The the the. Right. Uh, allure and the attraction of the of the urban environment, I, you know, um, with COVID, it, it changed everything. Yep. So you wonder about bedroom communities. Wouldn't, wouldn't the real estate be going up? And uh, I would just think that if you're near, they are. If you're near train wild. station, yeah. huh? it's it's wild. The price, the prices that are going on. Um, I mean, I'm up in Connecticut and you're just watching the, the real estate prices just go up and up Re- and up really? and up. Is and up. that true? It's, really, okay. it's something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing it's in New really Jersey. Meantime, uh, I'll, I'll be returning on the show from Barbados because you could be anywhere. Joe, still chuckling a little bit about football and why we care this time around. Yeah. I, I, you know, anything, Not the Ivies? No. But anything I see, this morning it was Eric Chemi, and so they're, they're cardboard cutouts of fans. I saw that too. Then I realized. I, know, I wanted one when I saw it. I, I realized out in uh, Englewood Cliffs, they do have that, that, that full size cardboard cutout of me. So then I was thinking, yep. you know, if like next week, if I don't feel like being here someday, I might just Maybe. put it put it right here and just have a sound, you know, just have, have something on a loop. Less taxes, uh, less government, more, a welcome, you know, just a welcome respite. Uh, yeah. um, plus, they got sound. Silent they got sound. Down. They're going to pipe in sounds like the Tesla, you know, the, the, the motors. They're going to. Yeah, I saw that. They're yeah. going to pipe in uh, right. fans cheering. And I read this stuff and, and we just go, oh, I okay. cut out. We go, oh, this makes sense. Put an entire stadium full of cardboard cutouts, people like that. Yes. And, 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 but you know what? And, and we all go, yeah, that people makes sense. People would do it. I know, but people it's People would just... do it because I was thinking the camera would, like, go in on the crowd and you could see, hey, there I am. You know, there's mom. If you... I, I, I was watching that thinking, people are definitely going to want to do this. But this has been a slow, sort of a slow bleed to where we accept anything. If someone a year ago said that the, the stadiums are going to be full of cardboard cutouts with, with piped-in... We would have never believed any of this stuff, would we? I mean, it, now it's just, oh, okay. Tells you how far we've come. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. how far we've come or how, you know, how, how much we've, I, I guess, lost. Or we, but we just accept anything now. Anyway, uh, but we, once yeah. again, but we digress. That's Squawk Pod for today and for another week. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Subscribe anytime to Squawk Pod. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, if you'd be so kind. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. 